Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Episode 75, Grecobactria, Alexandria Eschkate to Icon Noon. The concept of a flourishing Greek civilization in Central Asia has served as a source of wonder for many, compounded by a lack of literary and archaeological evidence. Since the 1960s, a wealth of information has come forward that, while still quite small and situated in an unstable political environment, has nevertheless revealed a great deal about the organization and landscape of Hellenistic Bactria. But as much as these discoveries support a strong Hellenic presence, they also demonstrate that the Greco-Bactrian and successor Indo-Greek kingdoms are no less complex than the other Hellenistic states. With our narrative adjourned at the death of Eucratides, let us look towards the social, economic, political, and cultural organization of Greco-Bactria to better understand what life was like for both Greeks and Bactrians during the Hellenistic period. One of the most captivating monikers used by ancient authors to describe Bactria is Land of a Thousand Cities. Paradoxically, the amount of archaeological evidence for urban settlements dating to the Hellenistic period is remarkably thin. Our sources indicate that building and colonization projects began shortly after Alexander's arrival. Strabo suggests that he founded eight cities in Bactria and Sogdiana whereas Plutarch claims upwards of 70 throughout all of Asia. Later kings like Seleucus I, Antiochus I, and Eucratides I were said to have established new settlements in the region. Regardless of the number of cities that were actually founded, we can determine that the extent of colonization and settlement was extraordinary. More colonists were placed in Bactria and Sogdiana by Alexander than all the other Asian satrapies combined he had faced an incredible amount of resistance from the local communities during his conquest, so it is only natural to assume that the populating of cities and military outposts with Greeks and Macedonians was to act as a bulwark against a native uprising. However, most of the colonists were soldiers unable to serve due to infirmity or old age, so it was also a way to relieve the burden of Alexander's army. It is also worth noting that Alexander tended to send Greek mercenaries, some of whom he felt were disloyal or untrustworthy, to the most remote satrapies. Deportation to Bactria was a policy practiced by Persian rulers as well, so Alexander was following a precedent and likely looking to keep his more seditious troops out of the way. The resentment of the colonists being forcibly settled so far away from their homeland quickly made itself apparent, as they revolted in 326-325, and more famously in 323 after Alexander's death. Diodorus says over 23,000 men made up the army of the Second Revolt, who were all cut down to a man on the orders of the standing regent Perdiccas. It is therefore prudent that a survey of the major urban settlements of Bactria and Sogdiana are in order. At the most distant tendrils of Alexander's empire and the Greco-Bactrian world was the city of Alexandria Eschkate, appropriately translated as Alexandria the Farthest. As the name implies, it was the northernmost colony ever established by Alexander and his successors, and most scholars tend to locate it at the site of modern Kojen, Tajikistan, previously Lennabad. Built along the Sir Daria and the opening to the Fergana Valley, the city was intended to be a buffer against the nomads of the steppes. It's quite possible that it was built atop the remains of Syropolis, 
founded by the Persian king Cyrus the Great during his own expedition into Scythia, further cementing its military purpose. This settlement threatened to cut off the close economic relationship between the local Sogdians and the nomads, inspiring a satrapy-wide rebellion. At some point after Alexander's departure, the city may have been attacked and destroyed by one of the local steppe tribes out of retaliation. In the 290s, a Seleucid general named Demodamus of Miletus was commissioned to explore and oversee the area between the Daria and the Aral Sea, and he probably oversaw the refoundation of Alexandria Ashkete into Antioch in Scythia, named after his benefactor Antiochus I. Antioch in Margiana, the later site of Merv in modern Turkmenistan, was founded by the eponymous Antiochus I. The Greeks were not the first to recognize its importance. Thanks to the runoff of mountain rivers, Merv was situated in an oasis at the mouth of the hostile Karakum Desert, and apparently a suitable place to plant the grapevine. It is unsurprising, then, that the area saw many settlements dated to both before and after the Hellenistic period, as its strategic and geographic value was well understood. The region was dotted heavily with military fortresses during Greek rule, and Antiochus himself ordered the construction of large stone fortifications. Excavations have revealed that the defensive walls measured 10 meters in height and over 8 kilometers in length, making it overwhelmingly the largest city in Margiana. His extensive militarization of the area may have been inspired by the possible destruction of settlements that were previously placed there by Alexander. As the caravan routes of Central Asia developed under later Parthian rule, so too did Merv's importance as a watering hole and trading hub. Interestingly, the city itself would see the arrival of another displaced population from the Mediterranean, 10,000 Roman legionaries, captured at the Battle of Carai in 53 BC, after Marcus Licinius Crassus led them in a failed campaign against the Parthian Empire. Following their imprisonment, the legionaries were transported to Merv and reportedly ordered to build up the city's fortifications. One of the major cities of Bactria was Bactra, located in northern Afghanistan at the modern site of Balkh. Also known as Zaryaspa, it was the administrative capital during the rule of the Persians, and it continued to function much the same way during the Greco-Bactrian period. It probably held the primary mint in the region, originally established by the Seleucids, and continued to strike coins into the last rulers of Greco-Bactria. Its defenses must have been extensive, as King Euthydemus was able to endure a vicious siege by Antiochus III from 208 to 206. Centuries of development by later Central Asian powers, particularly the Kushan Empire, have largely removed the major monuments dating to the Hellenistic period, and extensive portions remain buried under debris generated over two millennia of continuous human habitation. In southern Tajikistan on the banks of the Amudarya is Tak Isangin, throne of stone in the Tajik language. Its unassuming position and lack of appearance in the sources is betrayed by the remarkable discoveries uncovered by archaeological missions. It is home to an enormous temple which received substantial donations and deposits over the centuries, likely paying tribute to the deified Oxus River. It may even be the origin of the famous Oxus treasure, a collection of beautiful gold jewelry and other artifacts dating between the Persian and the Kushan period. While such a provenance is almost impossible to identify now, there are many artifacts that have been recovered from the site, such as painted terracotta busts and various other objects deposited in the temples as votives. Yet, without a doubt, the most important city ever uncovered in the archaeological record of Greco-Bactria, and for the entirety of the Hellenistic Far East in general, 
is I Kanum. Discovered during a hunting trip of the Afghan king Muhammad Zahir Shah in 1961, the ruins of I Kanum can be found in the Takhar province of northeastern Afghanistan, at the confluence of the Kokcha River and the Amu Darya. For the first time, scholars had something to work with, a way to dispel the Bactrian mirage, an idea that was rooted in the failed attempts of the first archaeologists to locate any indication of a prosperous Greek civilization, as hinted by Justin and Strabo. Of course, as excavations continued throughout the 1960s and 70s, it soon became apparent that this Greek city clearly possessed a more multifaceted or cosmopolitan identity than originally believed. As much as it illuminates our understanding of the period, several aspects continue to elude us. We aren't even sure of the city's true Greek name. Ikanum means Lady Moon in the Uzbek language, and there have been various theories as to its origins. For instance, when we look at the city's structure and organization, it does not appear to have been built all at once, and clearly there are multiple stages of growth and development that make any identification tricky. From what we can tell, it was initially established during the reign of Antiochus I, between 281 and 261 BC, perhaps expanding on an initial Achaemenid structure. Some suggest that its true name is Eucratidea, built or expanded by Eucratides during the early 2nd century to become his new capital. Other possible names include Alexandria Oxiana, due to the descriptions of ancient geographers who say Alexander founded the city along the Oxus. The so-called Founder's Shrine indicates that the settlement's original leader may have been a man called Cineus, complicating the matter further. In spite of the issues of identification, there are many topographical features of the plains of Ikanum that make it an attractive place to settle. Given its position at the junction of two mighty rivers, it had plenty of access to fresh water. The local Bactrians had skillfully built two canals designed to bring the water up the plains, but the Greeks later added a third canal, presumably to accommodate for the swollen and densely concentrated population. This river junction also was a major crossing point, enabling the officials to oversee and manage the traffic that would be moving in and out of the region. Engineers and architects took advantage of the elevated position and built well-fortified walls to act as a bulwark against any attacks, though perhaps not as impenetrable as the founders may have hoped. The organizational layout of Ikanum is as follows. Arranged in the triangular formation, the city was laid out on a hippodamian grid, with its streets meeting at 90-degree angles, a noticeably Greek feature that can still be seen peeking out of the soil in aerial photographs. The cityscape itself is divided into upper and lower portions, with the lower levels containing the bulk of the public structures and is also the most excavated of the pair. Such buildings include a theater, baths, and a gymnasium, all hallmarks of a Greek occupation. Nearby is a large palatial complex, equally indicative of the site's status as a royal capital during at least some part of its lifetime, and a raised acropolis of some 60 meters 197 feet, further adds to the spectacle. Residencies could be found throughout the city. The southern portion held several large mansions that presumably would house the elite, whereas the simpler homes for commoners could be found in neighborhoods along the acropolis and other parts of the settlement. Ikanum was truly enormous with its main street measuring almost 2 kilometers in length, and the total plan covering nearly 300 square kilometers, 115 square miles, or just under 74,000 acres. Despite the preponderance of Greek institutions like the gymnasium, a hippodamian grid, and the theater, 
There are several elements of Aikanum that bear local influences or demonstrate some unique blend of styles or tastes. The domestic architecture of homes throughout the city, both for rich and poor alike, adheres to the customs of the Bactrians. The settlers of Aikanum could not ignore the realities of the climate of Central Asia when compared to the warmer shores of the Mediterranean, including their access to construction materials. Rather than marble or stone, buildings and fortifications were built with local mud brick and wood techniques. Fireplaces are a common fixture, a necessary feature to deal with the cold and dry Afghan winters. With the Palace of Aikanum, we find a blend of Greek and Iranian designs in both its structure and decoration. The plan was based more on Achaemenid precedents than anything that could be found in Pella or Antioch, with a courtyard and long rectangular hallways containing many private rooms, though it is not necessarily a one-to-one -one match. Corinthian-style columns and Greek motifs decorated the building's walkways and porticos, though the decomposition of organic materials, furniture, textiles, etc., prevents us from gaining a richer appreciation for the aesthetics of the building. This distinctively Hellenistic mixture was adapted by contemporary and later powers that dominated the region, such as the Parthian city of Nisa and the settlements of the Kushans. What sort of conclusions can we draw upon the impact of Greek rule on the cities of Bactria? In general, the population density of regions like Margiana and Bactria increased with the arrival of the Greeks. We also see the broad importation of Mediterranean architectural and artistic tastes, which also indicates the existence of typically Hellenic institutions and practices. This needs to be tempered with the fact that even our most important example of a Greek city nevertheless betrays a significant Central Asian and even Mesopotamian influence on its appearance and identity. How much we stress the Greek element in certain artistic designs, their incorporation to the urbanized environment of Bactria, and what this means in terms of the culture and attitude of those who lived among them varies wildly. As scholar Rachel Mayers notes, quote, when is a Corinthian column in the Hellenistic Far East a sign of Greek identity, and when is it something that simply supports a roof? To be known as the land of a thousand cities, Bactria must have been prosperous to some extent, something which is very much apparent from both the literary and archaeological record. True, the aridity and temperature fluctuations of many parts of Central Asia could cause severe problems for those trying to make a living off the land. Like with the Nile River in Egypt, the tributary system of the Oxus River enabled for the development of large-scale agriculture, mainly due to the extensive hydraulic knowledge cultivated by the Bactrians over many centuries. It is worthy to note that even after two years of siege and plundering of the countryside, Euthydemus was able to supply ample amounts of grain to the army of Antiochus, indicating just how much foodstuffs was being produced. Strabo states that everything but olive trees flourished in Bactria, which included grain and the grapevine. No doubt that local favorites like melons were grown in great quantities as well, the same fruit that reportedly caused Babur, the great Mughal conqueror of India, to burst into tears because they reminded him of his homeland near Samarkand. In addition to subsistence farming, pastoralism was commonly practiced throughout much of the region. Hardy animals like the Karakul sheep provided wool to be used for clothing and textiles, in addition to food products like milk and meat. 
In the grasslands of Fergana, horses were bred in great numbers and provided some of the finest mounts in the ancient world, the so-called heavenly horses. One of the most important domesticated animals of the region is the Bactrian camel, the two-humped cousin of the one-humped Arabian variety. Their ability to resist the fierce winters and survive months without water made them hardy creatures, but they are also capable of carrying enormous weights for great distances. The abundance of Bactria and Sogdiana is reflected by its sizable population, which has been estimated to be upwards of 2 million people during the Seleucid period. This is smaller than regions like Asia Minor and Mesopotamia, but these lands were still recognized in antiquity as major population centers. In addition to its agricultural productivity, Bactria also held great mineral wealth. The Badakhshan Mountains of Afghanistan remains one of the only sources of lapis lazuli in the world, a rich blue pigment used in both jewelry and cosmetics, and it was a major export for the wider economy of Eurasia since at least the early Bronze Age. 75 kilograms of bulk lapis lazuli was discovered in the ruined treasury of Ai Khanum, still waiting to be cut and processed in time of need. These mountains are also one of the few tin deposits in Eurasia, providing one of the necessary components to produce bronze. Silver and gold mines must have been present, or at least reasonably accessible by trade, to facilitate the minting of its famous coins. Because of its geographic position and abundant resources, Bactria and Sogdiana would become a major crossroads for the merchants and caravans traveling throughout Eurasia. While overland trade with China would not really kick off until after the end of the Greco-Bactrian Kingdom, travelers from India and Mesopotamia would journey to and from these lands in great numbers, bringing further wealth and traffic. The presence of Bactrian camels had an important role in facilitating these trade networks and maintaining the logistics of the Bactrians, especially when they made crossing between the oases dotting up and down Central Asia with heavy loads that much easier. The political organization of Bactria is largely unknown, but the few pieces of evidence we have suggest that it was very similar to the practices of other Hellenistic kingdoms, leading one expert to comment that the tax receipts from Bactria are nearly identical to the ones written in Ptolemaic Egypt. The discovery of an archive of administrative documents has given much insight to the early part of Greek rule, where it appears that Alexander did not interfere too much in the structure and organization of the region. How much can this be applied to the later parts of Greco-Bactrian rule is uncertain, but it is unlikely that they made any substantial changes. We know that they divided the regions into smaller satrapies or hyparchies, since Strabo mentions the name of two administrative sub-satrapies in western Bactria. Greek remained the dominant language of the administrative class, and its alphabet later became the basis for the earliest forms of a written Bactrian language. We do know that Aramaic, the lingua franca of the Iranian plateau continues to be used thanks to the recovered archives and the inscriptions of the Indian emperor Ashoka. It also stands to reason that, like with Egypt, officials drawn from the local Bactrian communities would continue to be employed in the government, though perhaps in the lower levels, while the Greeks continued to form the upper stratum of the elite. This is attested to by the names of officials on administrative documents, who were always the subordinates of higher-ranking administrators with Greek names. In terms of positions, there were probably overseers of the irrigation canals and hydraulic systems, and in the more Hellenic cities, you could find officials like the Agora Nomos, and higher officials like the Hyparchs and Satraps in royal capitals like Iconum. Another important responsibility of administration is that of overseeing the minting of coins, 
invaluable for their ability to inform us about the organization of Hellenistic Central Asia and India. I have stressed caution on the interpretation of coins when looking to reconstruct a history of Bactria, for while they do provide valuable information such as the names of rulers and a possible chronology, the temptation for researchers to create family trees and personalities solely based on their portraits or alleged evidence of lineage remains powerful. When we look past the names of rulers and try to focus on other aspects of coinage, we can glean a surprising amount of information about both the broader picture and finer details. Traditionally, it is thought that Alexander had been the one to liberate much of the silver bullion that was stored in the treasuries of the Persians, monetizing the economy of the East. Most would now give that credit to the Seleucids, who established a mint at Bactra, and the later Greco-Bactrian kings who likely added another mint in I. Canum. The largest coin hoards of the ancient world have been found in Bactria, and there are a great number of them as well. It is important to realize though that the number and size of coin hoards do not necessarily indicate the level of monetization in the region, but rather the level of political instability. These deposits were buried but never recovered by their owners, who were either killed or unable to return to the spot because of invasion or any wars bought in the area. One curious feature of Bactrian coinage is the presence of cuprum nickel, a copper nickel alloy that gives a distinctive shine, and it can be found in the coins of three kings, Euthydemus II, Agathocles, and Pantaleon. The instructions on how to make cuprum nickel was known to ancient China, but was unheard of in Europe and West Asia until the mid-18th century. How the Bactrians got a hold of it is unknown. Since it was only this series of rulers that struck coins using copper nickel, they probably did not gain the knowledge on how to make the alloy from the Chinese, but either received copper nickel ingots through the trade, or the plunder taken from the conquests of Demetrius in India, which immediately preceded the reign of Euthydemus II. Overseeing all would be the kings, who presumably followed the model practiced by the Seleucids and Ptolemies, leading the command of armies, hearing petitions, and maintaining a council of close advisors. The Greco-Bactrian rulers frequently implemented joint kingship to mitigate geographical restrictions, a practice that was shared with or inspired by the Seleucids. As king, Demetrius was probably able to embark on his conquests of India while his father Euthydemus was still alive, based on evidence from the Kuliab inscription. Antimachus is said to have reigned alongside junior figures Eumenes and a second Antimachus. Based on some scattered references and evidence, it is likely that some sort of ruler cult was also established. The later ruler Agathocles minted commemorative coins that honored several Greco-Bactrian kings, going back to even Alexander the Great. One of these coins depicts Euthydemus I, and gives him the epithet Theos, godlike. A tax document written in the lifetime of Antimachus I describes him also as Theos, indicating that the moniker was no longer restricted to the deceased. Returning to coinage, those minted by the Diodotids were not unusual in their form and presentation, and they still adhere to the temple of the king wearing the diadem with an uncovered head. As the later rulers come about, this begins to change. While Hellenistic monarchs and later Roman emperors were prone to unrealistically portraying themselves as eternally youthful throughout their reigns, Euthydemus issued multiple coins that clearly showed the aging process, 
with the portrait of a dashing young man giving way to wrinkles and plumper features. Antimachus's profile is also distinct because his portrait shows him smiling, an element that is more reminiscent of archaic and classical Greek art from the 5th century than anything from the Hellenistic period. Profiles of Eucratides are more militaristic, and depict him wearing a Boeotian cavalry helmet or wielding a javelin. Antimachus I wears the Chalcia, the broad-brimmed cap that was a common fixture for Macedonian colonists and soldiers. Displays of martial prowess and militarism are ever-present elements of Hellenistic monarchies, with their territory considered spear one land, a phrase that is visually translated with Eucratides' aggressive pose. To my knowledge, there are almost no coins that show the king wearing such military garb for almost any other Hellenistic dynasty. The only exception is that of Timarchus, a rebellious Seleucid official who appears to have directly modeled his coins after those of Eucratides, and this trend would be carried forward by the Indo-Greek rulers as well. Perhaps this overt display is tied to the violent politics of the region. Skill in battle may have trumped dynastic loyalty or moral qualms about regicide. It could also be a choice born out of their cultural isolation, since by Eucratides' time they had been separated from the Seleucids due to the expansion of the Parthian Empire into the Iranian Plateau. They may have wanted to present themselves as champions of Hellenic military culture. The choice of gods to present on the reverse of these coins also reflects this warlike attitude. Diodotus moved away from the seated Apollo, the dynastic god of the Seleucids, and replaced him with a standing Zeus wielding the thunderbolt. Euthydemus and Demetrius chose Heracles, the club-wielding monster slayer who traveled the globe. While Zeus and Heracles are among the most popular deities for the Greco-Bactrians and the Indo-Greeks, there are also other figures that appear in peculiar strikes. Antimachus I used Poseidon standing with a trident, perhaps referring to a river victory, or more likely the god's connection to horses and cavalry. Eucratides chose the Dioscuri, the twin brothers Castor and Pollux that were renowned horsemen, and they can also symbolize the importance of the joint kingship that Eucratides shared with his son. Along with its kings would be queens of Bactria, but we have very little to draw upon in terms of sources. Antiochus III is said to have promised his daughter's hand in marriage to Demetrius I, though we aren't given her name, nor do we have any explicit evidence that this promise was fulfilled. Only one woman makes an appearance on Greco-Bactrian coins, a lady named Laodike. She was clearly an important figure, as her profile appears alongside a man named Heliocles, but of the two, it is she who wears the royal diadem. Her name may reflect a Seleucid background, given the commonality of the Laodikes among the women of that dynasty, and the supposed marriage between Antiochus' daughter and Demetrius, but nothing is certain. It's likely that the Greco-Bactrian kings married daughters and sisters of high-ranking Greek officials, but one cannot help but wonder if they also married highborn women from the local Bactrian and Sogdian communities to ensure political stability. Alexander took the hand of Rakshana, the daughter of the powerful Oxyartes, and Seleucus was wed to Apama, the daughter of Spitamenes, a Sogdian warlord and fierce opponent of the Macedonian invaders. Given that one of the main functions of a king was to lead in battle, and how Bactrian war go hand in hand in our sources, it is worth considering the militaristic side of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. The ancient authors stressed the large amounts of manpower that could be drawn from the region. Euthydemus is said to have been able to field 10,000 cavalrymen against Antiochus III at the Battle of the Aria River, an amount without parallel in any other contemporary engagement that would have required great resources to maintain. 
Justin claims that Eucrates endured a siege by the army of the Indo-Greek king Demetrius, which numbered 60,000 strong. As we have already discussed, Alexander and the early Seleucids oversaw an extensive settlement program and the establishment of military colonies. Presumably the sons of these veterans would have been enlisted into the army, and possible theories about the existence of a clerukic system, whereby soldiers would be given land to supplement their income in return for a continual service, have been suggested, though not confirmed. The hiring of mercenaries may have been a suitable route to acquire new troops. A play of the comedian Menander, known as the Samia, and dated to the late 4th century, has the protagonist consider heading off to Bactria as a soldier for hire. While the scene is intended to be tongue-in-cheek, journeying to the east to ply one's trade as a mercenary was considered a plausible, if slightly excessive, career decision. In terms of their conduct in war, the Greco-Bactrian rulers probably continued to utilize the tried and true method of the Macedonian pike phalanx and heavy cavalry. A golden clasp recovered from Telia Tepe and dating to the first century shows two warriors, dressed in the kit of a Hellenistic soldier. A muscle cuirass with rows of paturges, a Boeotian helmet, a military cloak, along with a spear and shield. A terracotta relief from Kempir Tempe shows a similar image, though dated closer to the second century. This figure is more akin to a Thoreos, a type of soldier employed with a shorter sword and a large oval shield, bearing a resemblance to a Roman legionary or Celtic warriors. These were adopted by the Seleucid and Ptolemaic armies by the early 2nd century, and it must be presumed that either knowledge of these troop types was passed to Bactria, or perhaps mercenaries continued to flow into the region during this time. Eucratides' coins of the Dioscuri show cavalrymen wielding long pikes akin to the men serving as part of the royal agema or companion cavalry. While the Eucratidic Dioscuri and the Tiliatepe warriors are depicting mythological deities rather than actual Greco-Bactrian or Indo-Greek troops, they probably were modeled on equipment that was in use in the region during this time. It also is a testament to how Hellenistic arms and armor continue to persist and remain in the memory of Central Asian culture. In addition to the Greek colonists, the kings could call upon the native Bactrians and Sogdians to serve in substantial amounts. We know a lot more about their roles in Persian armies, but it probably did not differ too much in practice. In addition to fielding infantry, the tradition of horse-rearing in the area likely saw local Iranians serving in the cavalry in appropriately high numbers. Along with Bactrians, the hiring of troops from the tribes of the steppe was not opposed either. Documents recovered from Ikanum include a receipt for the employment of Saka mercenaries, presumably providing service as heavy cavalry or mounted archers. Armor pieces from the city treasury were also discovered, and have been assessed as being part of the panoply of a cataphract, the heavily armed lancers that were cultivated on the steppe, and later adopted by the Seleucids and the Romans. Elephants have also been associated with Bactria as well. In 274, the Babylonian Chronicle records the governor of Bactria sending Antiochus I 20 elephants during the First Syrian War. It has been debated whether there was an actual elephant breeding facility like the one at Syrian Apamea. It is possible that the elephants of 274 were leftovers from the original 500 provided by Chandragupta Maurya to Seleucus I as part of the Treaty of the Indus in 303. By 206, however, Euthydemus was able to give Antiochus III an unknown number of elephants after the siege of Bactra, so whether he received them from one of the neighboring Indian lords or had been breeding them, they seem to have been employed to some extent. 
Greek were the Greco-Bactrians? How Iranian? The question of identity is contentious, and given my discussions on both the Seleucid Empire and Ptolemaic Egypt, I hope that I've been able to illustrate the complexity of the idea of Hellenization. But with Greco-Bactria, and later the Indo-Greeks, it is incredibly intriguing to imagine something like Athens transplanted in Asia, but the meager amounts of evidence we have requires us to take a step back and carefully assess our findings. As I spoke earlier, Bactria saw an enormous wave of colonization during Alexander's conquest, so its Greek population was anything but inconsequential. In addition to their geographic displacement from Greece by thousands of miles, the early settlers of Bactria seemed to have felt culturally isolated and deeply resented their alien environment. Diodorus directly lists one of the major reasons behind the mercenary revolt of 323 was because they longed to return to their homelands and Greek ways of life. Alexandria Eschkete in Sogdiana was viewed as the effective end of civilization. The Seleucid explorer Demodamus consecrated the furthest extent of his journey with stone altars dedicated to Apollo, much in the same vein as Alexander on the Hyphasis, to demarcate the borders of the known world. Because of this, it is not surprising that both the Seleucid and Greco-Bactrian rulers, along with the settlers and their descendants, sought to replicate or import much of the trappings of Hellenic culture. Located in the city center of Ai Kanum is a great Harun, an enclosed shrine and tomb dedicated to a man named Canaeus. We have no idea who Canaeus was, but he clearly was an important member of the first wave of settlers. Inside the tomb, there is a marble slab inscribed with maxims of the Oracle of Delphi. It reads as follows, quote, Speak well of everyone. Be a lover of wisdom. These wise sayings of men of old, the maxims of renowned men, are enshrined in the holy Pytho, Delphi. There Clearchos copied them conscientiously, and he set them up here in the sanctuary of Canaeus, blazing them from afar. As a child, be well behaved. As a young man, self-controlled. In middle age, be just. As an elder, be of good counsel. And when you come to the end, be without grief. End quote. The message of Delphi, long considered to house the Omphalos, or navel of the Greek world, was symbolically carried to Afghanistan. Indeed, many of the Seleucid coins show Apollo, the patron of Delphi and the Seleucid dynasty, seated upon the stone Omphalos. Traditionally, Greek settlers would seek the blessings of the oracle residing at the temple before establishing a new colony. The dedicant, Clearchus, is often thought to be the peripatetic philosopher of the same name, though there is no definitive way to prove this, and some have argued it was placed there long after he had died. If we follow this line of reasoning, then this marker was established during the second expansion of Ai Kanum into a royal capital. The Greek residents of Ai Kanum were consciously linking themselves with the larger Hellenic community, retroactively incorporating it into their civic history. Along with the maxims of Delphi, there is other evidence of a Greek intellectual culture at Ai Kanum. The existence of a theater, capable of seating 6,000 occupants, presumably means that plays were put on for the residents of both the city and the surrounding regions. Amazingly, 21 lines of iambic verse from an otherwise unknown tragedy have been recovered. Translations reveal that the subject matter is tied to the god Dionysius, an important deity in the Greek perception of the East. Euripides Bacchae claims that Bactria was one of the places visited by the god of wine, and Alexander made major sacrifices in Dionysius' name while in Samarkand. 
King Pantaleon placed the bust of Dionysius on one of his coins to celebrate his conquests in India. Unfortunately, we are unable to draw any serious conclusions, but it is not the only piece of literature to be discovered. The assumption that the Clearchus of the Delphi inscriptions and the Peripatetic philosopher are one and the same has tickled scholars' imagination with ideas of Greek philosophy being studied in Bactria. While the association of Clearchus is conjectural, there is far more evidence to demonstrate its reality. A substantially better preserved papyrus fragment from Iconum has four columns of text containing part of a philosophical treatise. The treatise is structured exactly like a Socratic dialogue, and the subject of the discussion is the Platonic theory of forms. Like with the Dionysian tragedy, this text is from an unknown work and authorship, though some have speculated that it could be a lost book of Aristotle. An attractive answer since Clearchus of Soli was of the Peripatetic school, founded by the descendants of Aristotle's Lycium. It is very possible that this is not an Aristotelian work, but an original by a Greco-Bactrian author. There also existed a gymnasium in Iconum, a quintessentially Greek institution not only intended to hone athletic ability, but also serve as part of the education of the younger Greek males of the community. An inscription on the bust found in the gymnasium indicates that it was dedicated by the brothers Tribalos and Strato to the gods Hermes and Heracles, patron deities of athletes. It appears that martial arts like boxing, wrestling, and pankration continue to be practiced in both Bactria and India. A small votive found in the Lalura district in Afghanistan shows two wrestlers engage in a sparring contest, dated to the 2nd or 3rd century AD. On the votive is an inscription with a Karashthi rendition of a Greek name, Menander, perhaps the name of the wrestler who dedicated an offering in honor of his victory. With regards to the religious life of the Greco-Bactrians, we know that the Olympians were carried to the east by the Greeks, and worshipped and depicted in much the same fashion as they were back home. The inscription of Heliodotos, honoring both Euthydemus and Demetrius I, was consecrated at the altar of Hestia in a grove of Zeus. Funerary urns dated to the early 3rd century BC contain the cremated remains of two young children named Lysanias and Isadora, sharing the same burial practices as their forebears. Yet as we have seen in places like Egypt and Babylonia, the worship and veneration of the divine can manifest in ever-complex forms and blur the lines between Greek and non-Greek. At Iconum, there exist the remains of a religious sanctuary known as the Temple of Indented Niches. Given its size and prominence in the city, it is unusual to see that the temple is neither Greek nor Iranian in design, but bears its closest similarity to Mesopotamian architecture, namely through the indented niches on the exterior walls. Among the templed ruins is also the sandaled foot of an enormous stone cult statue. Carved onto the shoe is a thunderbolt, and a large flower with many petals. Based on the presence of the thunderbolt, some postulate that the temple was dedicated to the god Zeus. Perhaps it was a diodic dedication as seen with their use of Zeus on their coinage. However, the thunderbolt in conjunction with the flower gives the impression that it was more tied to fertility in springtime rather than the display of power and authority. It may indeed be a representation of the goddess Kibele, as supported by the discovery of a medallion of Kibele in the same room. Of course, there is nothing stopping devotees of other religious backgrounds worshipping in a temple that is of Hellenic, Iranian, or Mesopotamian origin. One may see Zeus, where the other sees Mithra, and vice versa. Another important sanctuary was the Temple of the Oxus, built at Takisangin during the early 3rd century BC. 
Its extremely large size and extensive fortifications, possessing an outer wall that required over 300,000 mud bricks, suggests that construction was funded by the royal patronage of the Seleucids. The temple ascribes very much to Iranian practice with some Greek influence, and while some originally believed it was a Zoroastrian temple, all evidence suggests that it was a sanctuary dedicated to the deified Oxus River. One example of the complexities of worship is the Marcius votive, discovered in the ruins of the temple. A bronze figurine of Marcius, a flute-plating satyr, was placed atop of a stone base and deposited in the temple sometime during the 2nd century. There is a Greek inscription upon its base that reads as follows, quote, Atrosokis dedicated this ex voto to the Oxus. Despite the use of the Greek language and the dedication of a Greek mythological figure, there is more to the picture. The name of the man who dedicated it, Atrosokis, is Bactrian in origin and means possessing the power of the divine fire. If Greek was a language of the elites, it certainly makes sense as to why this Bactrian would choose to use it in this act of piety. Atrosoki's offering harkens back to a long-standing local veneration of the Oxus River, which was the lifeblood of Bactria itself. Many of the names of the native Bactrians that have survived through administrative documents and written records are a testament to its importance. Oxiartes, Oxibazos, and Oxiboakis, to name a few. If we believe that the Temple of Indented Niches at Iconum was dedicated to Kibale, it may also be a stand-in for the deified Oxus, or perhaps the Iranian water goddess Anahita. The choice to use a figurine of Marcius for a dedication to a river deity is curious but appropriate, since the satyr is associated with the Meander River in Asia Minor. A sculpted metal disc from eastern Iran shows a Seleucid war elephant, and upon its back is a cloth saddle with a rendering of a hippocampus, a water-dwelling fish-tailed horse commonly accompanying the god Poseidon. Given Bactria's association with elephants in its landlocked geography, it is quite possible that this hippocampus was directly evoking the Oxus. While the votive of Atrosokis can potentially be seen as an instance of Bactrian religious practices communicated through a Greek means, there is a similar example in the Temple of Apollo than the island of Delos in the Aegean Sea, one of the most important and renowned sanctuaries in the Greek world. Among its ruins are a list of inscriptions providing an inventory count of all major donations given to the temple. One was recorded in 179 BC and reads, quote, The upper part of a lion on a plinth, the dedication of Hyspasenes, son of Mithroaxos, a Bactrian. Both Hyspasenes and Mithroaxos are very much Iranian names, and if we are to assume that Atrosokis deposited his treasure in a temple of the deified Oxus, it seems somewhat unusual to have a Bactrian contribute to a very Hellenic sanctuary. However, the Seleucid dynasty viewed Apollo as a patron deity, and struck coins using the image of the bow-wielding god. It could directly evoke models of Iranian kingship, and so it is possible that Apollo still resonated with the Bactrians long after the Seleucids gave up control of the area. But there is also the question of how Hyspasenes ended up at Delos, and how he identified himself culturally or ethnically. Was he a Bactrian immigrant, or merely a traveler? A Hellenized Bactrian that worshipped Greek gods? A mixed Greco-Bactrian ancestry? The possibilities are endless, and ultimately inconclusive. Without an abundance of papyrus fragments, our ability to understand the relationship between Greeks and Bactrians remains limited. Since the original colonists brought by Alexander and the Seleucids were largely male Greek soldiers and camp followers, 
It is therefore inevitable that mixed marriages with native Bactrian and Sogdian women would have occurred to some extent. In Hellenistic Egypt, we saw how mixed families and their descendants could play fast and loose with their concept of self-identity, being Greek or Egyptian whenever it seemed fit. It is likely that we have similar circumstances between the Greek and Iranian communities of the region. A useful case study can be found with the Bronchidae. The descendants of Milesian Greeks settled by Xerxes in Sogdiana and later encountered by Alexander. After almost 150 years since they migrated from the Mediterranean, it appears that they still spoke Greek, but it had developed into a kind of creole that borrowed heavily from local languages. They identified themselves as Hellenes, however, and their lifestyle and customs still resembled their ancestors. Not that this did anything to win the sympathy of the Milesians in Alexander's army, though. This sort of persistent civic identity is also hinted at by Polybius when he recounts Antiochus' invasion of Bactria. During the negotiations between the two kings, Euthydemus I attempted to establish a rapport with the Seleucid ambassador Teleus by pointing to a shared ancestry to the Greek city of Magnesia. As the excavations of Iconum have revealed, the upper and lower class incorporated both Hellenic and Central Asian material culture and designs into their homes. The political language and many of the city's most prominent public buildings are characteristically Greek, but the persistence of local customs and traditions is unmistakable, and whether we can attribute those choices to being a case of Bactrians Hellenizing or Greeks Orientalizing remains a mystery. As a brief aside, let me address the clothing of the Greco-Bactrians. More specifically, I am referring to the kausia, the hat worn by Macedonian commoners and nobles alike. The Persians even specifically called the peoples living in Macedonia Yona Takabara, the Greeks with shields on their heads. Along with the border of southeastern Afghanistan and Pakistan, several modern ethnic groups like the Pashtuns or the Ko wear a popular headdress known as the Pakol, a pie-shaped hat made of wool or felt. Some have noticed a resemblance between the Pakol and the Kausia, so much so that they postulated that it was a cultural leftover from the Greek occupation of Bactria or perhaps an export from the local Bactrians back to Macedonia. While it is an attractive idea, the Pakol didn't really come into existence until the late 19th century in northern Pakistan, before spreading into Afghanistan in the late 1970s. Was there any tension between the Greek and Bactrian communities? The arrival of the Macedonian army in 329 was punctuated by years of brutal warfare and rebellions, which saw tens of thousands of Bactrians and Sogdians killed in the fighting. We aren't told of any further rebellions by indigenous leaders, though the Sogdians were able to separate themselves from the rule of the Greco-Bactrian kings around the time of Euthydemus I. Despite there being evidence of Bactrians serving as part of the administrative class, resentment must have certainly built up to some degree or another by the occupation and dominance of a culturally distinct group. One Bactrian custom that offended Greek sensibilities was their funerary practices more specifically the corpse-eating dogs that were said to have roamed around Bactra. Bactria and the Eastern Iranian Plateau have often been considered the birthplace of the Zoroastrian religion, and the bone of contention between Greek polytheists and Zoroastrians was the practice of open-air exposure versus the cremation of dead bodies. Given the importance of the sacred fire as a symbol of Ahura Mazda, sullying the flames with human remains was and continues to be seen as a sacrilegious act by many Zoroastrians, who generally prefer that the dead be left out in the open and consumed by animals like carrion birds and dogs. Upon seeing this practice during his visit to Bactra, Alexander is said to have outlawed it out of disgust. 
which no doubt greatly incensed the local population. Interestingly, the Diodotids minted several bronze coins, species that was intended for local or regional use, and on the reverse is a depiction of Artemis, goddess of the hunt. Accompanying Artemis is a hunting dog, at least on earlier specimens, while later ones remove the dog but keep Artemis. One theory suggests that Diodotus may have abandoned the image of the dog, lest the Bactrians be reminded of the censorship of their religious beliefs and breed further resentment. considerable importance is the interaction between the Greco-Bactrians and the peoples of the steppe. Native Bactrians and Sogdians had long held a close economic and social relationship with the nomadic horse-rearing tribes, living along the Eurasian grasslands. Strabo suggests that the Sogdians were almost indistinguishable from the nomads living across the Jaxartes River, though the Bactrians were more urbanized and therefore more civilized. In the Persian period, this relationship continued to function as per usual albeit with some rough patches when those like Cyrus and Darius marched their armies in the region. The arrival of Alexander is thought to have seriously disrupted this network, as he and the later Seleucid kings would repeatedly clash with tribes like the Saka, the Dahai, and eventually the Parni. The foundation of Alexandria Eshkate, a military outpost intended to control or curb the movement of the nomads, may have been the final catalyst that caused the Satrapiwad revolt in Sogdiana during Alexander's campaigns. The Greeks took the nomadic threat quite seriously. One of the coins of Diodotus I, really issued by Diodotus II, displays a marker on the coin face that indicates a military victory. It is quite possible that Diodotus had successfully fought against the Parthians when they first emerged onto the scene, and he may have used that victory to claim the title of king or perhaps Diodotus II retroactively championed his father's success to make his own bid for power. According to Polybius, Euthydemus I attempted to bargain for his position with Antiochus III by claiming that he alone was keeping the nomads of the steppes at bay. A united front against the likes of the Parthian and Saka would be mutually beneficial to the security of Asia. Euthydemus may have been only looking to protect his own interests, but there is a clear communication of his kingly role, and that of Antiochus, as the protector of the civilized world from the ravages of the barbarians. But we can also see that the Greco-Bactrian kings were more than willing to work with the nomads if needed, since there is a suggestion that Diodotus II and Arsakis I of Parthia may have formed a temporary alliance against Seleucus II. As I already relayed before, the hiring of Saka mercenaries and other nomadic tribes must have been attractive when the kings saw the potential of incorporating horse archers or cataphracts into their fold. No doubt, the Greco-Bactans would also wish to keep the nomads at arm's length, so they could get access to the fine horses raised by these communities to furnish for their armies as well. The connection between Bactria and the nomads is what leads us to the final part of this episode. As we discussed, the Golden Age under the reign of Eucrates I came to a violent end when he was assassinated by his own son after returning from India in approximately 145 BC. The name of this parricide is uncertain, as Justin does not give us enough details, though there are a couple of potential culprits. A successor named Eucrates II makes an appearance, strongly suggesting that he was a blood relative or a son of his namesake. Another is Heliocles I 
the man who most scholars consider to be the last Greek ruler of Bactria. His epithet Dikaios translates to the just, a fitting moniker if he was the one to overthrow the murder of Eucratides, or, perhaps, propaganda to cover up his crime. There is no certainty as to his relationship with Eucratides, though some may point to the commemorative coins of Heliocles and Laodice as proof of familial ties, which, as we've already discussed, is a problematic assumption to begin with. His reign, lasting from roughly 145 to 130, saw the end of the Greco-Bactrian kingdom due to a multitude of factors. One of the major threats to the security of Bactria was the neighboring Arsacid realm of Parthia. At the same time that Eucratides came to power, Parthia saw the rise of Mithridates I, one of the Arsacid dynasty's most capable rulers. The expansion of Parthia from a regional kingdom to a major empire was due in part to the collapse of Seleucid authority in Iran and Mesopotamia following the death of Antiochus IV Epiphanes in 164 and the civil wars that followed. Both he and Eucratides shared the same moniker, the Great, as they no longer viewed the Seleucids as a serious challenge to their autonomy while they were tied up by familial squabbles in Syria. But Eucratides' repeated wars have left his kingdom vulnerable to attack as well. While he was out campaigning in India, Mithridates chose to invade and seize parts of western Bactria and Arya in the early 140s, and a later Armenian chronicle claims that the Parthian ruler made it as far as Bactra. This might be attested to by a coin minted by Mithridates with an elephant on the reverse, perhaps signifying the victory over the Bactrians. While the Parthian invasions gnawed away at Eucratides' holdings, Mithridates was only able to incorporate the areas of Arya and Margiana into his domain. Of a more pressing matter for the Greco-Bactrians came from the north, beyond the Oxus and Juxartes. For several decades, the Eurasian steppes had been undergoing a dramatic restructuring thanks to a combination of military, political, and environmental pressures. In the late 3rd century, a powerful nomadic confederation known as the Xiongnu emerged on the Mongolian steppes and established a vast empire that posed a serious threat to his neighbors, including the Han Chinese. As the reach of the Xiongnu expanded west, they encountered and defeated other nomadic tribes, namely the Wusun and Yuechi confederation situated at the mouth of the Gansu Corridor. Between 176 and 160 BC, the Yuechi pushed west past the Tianshan Mountains and settled near the Pamir mountain range in the Fergana Valley. This domino effect of migrating tribes was felt in Central Asia as well, as the Yuechi displaced the Saka and other nomadic groups, who were sent southward into Sogdiana and, ultimately, Bactria. Strabo names four different tribes that helped topple the Greco-Bactrian kingdom. The Asians, the Passianians, the Sakaraukians, and the Tokarians. He clearly distinguishes them from the Saka, noting that they came from the lands beyond the Juxartes. This migration was also confirmed by the accounts of Chinese historians, and while it is difficult to try and firmly connect the Chinese terms with those of the Greco-Romans, most accept that the Tokarians, Tokaroi in Greek, should be identified with the Yuechi. The movement of these peoples occurred over many years, but archaeological evidence may point to a firmer date of the nomadic invasion of Bactria. This we can find in Ai Kanum, which was abandoned by 145. One of the last written documents of the city is a treasury record dated to year 24. This means either that a king was in his 24th year of rule at the time it was copied down, or it was the 24th year of a Greco-Bactrian or Indo-Greek era, 
modeled after the Seleucid era. Most believe this to be a marker for the reign of Eucratides, which would be approximately 146 or 145, and so it also forms the chronological marker for the end of Iconum and the approximate end of Eucratides' reign. Of all the known coin hoards discovered in the city, no coins minted after Eucratides have been found among them. The defensive walls display signs of damage from fire and warfare, with arrowheads of Scythian design having been discovered in the rubble as well. All evidence suggests that the inhabitants quickly abandoned the city at this time, though this was followed by a brief period of reoccupation. A likely second attack caused significant damage, and a great fire swept throughout the city shortly thereafter, thus ending the life of Ai Kanum. The Saka were soon followed by the Uechi, who permanently settled in Bactria by the late 130s, and would eventually establish the Kushan Empire. The turmoil afflicting the realm during the reign of Heliocles may be reflected in his coin dies, the tools used to strike images and inscriptions on coins. Studies show that there is a very high percentage of error among the dies used to mint Heliocles' coins, with nearly 20% of them showing spelling mistakes and other flaws. For perspective, the second highest error rate of 15% could be found among the dies of Antimachus I, but this can be accounted for by the fact that there are only around 20 specimens for Antimachus compared to 180 for Heliocles. It seems that Heliocles was in desperate need to strike coins in great numbers, as would be the case if he was pressured to try and provide pay for soldiers to be deployed in either the civil wars or in any battles with the Parthians and the Nomads. The high percentage suggests poor quality control, born out of a demand for high volumes at the cost of aesthetic quality, a lack of government oversight, or both. The discovery of several coin hoards dating to this period, buried by their owners out of fear of being robbed or looted, also indicates the level of general instability of the period. Attributing the lion's share of the blame to the nomads for the fall of Greco-Bactria is tempting, and certainly holds great merit given the evidence from both the historical and the archaeological record, since both Strabo and Pompeius Trogus consider the Saka and other groups to be the largest culprits behind the kingdom's collapse. There are many parallels between the end of Bactria and the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century AD, but like with the fall of Rome, the barbarian migrations form a piece of the larger puzzle. As we have seen, the political environment of Greco-Bactria was turbulent. Hellenistic monarchies tended to be warlike and violent even in the best of times, but the Bactrian rulers seemed particularly ambitious in this matter. Euthydemus I overthrew the last Diodotid king, Eucratides ousted the Euthydemids in his bid for power, and was in turn assassinated by his own son. The Greco-Bactrian kings directly competed with the Indo-Greek rulers, and each competed amongst themselves. Keep in mind, this is only what we are told from literary accounts. If we had more, I almost certainly guarantee that there would have been plenty more instances of dynastic squabbling. The damage inflicted to the fortifications of Iconum can be tied to stone missiles from field artillery like catapults and siege equipment, which aren't really tools associated with the nomadic way of war. Perhaps this was the result of a siege by a Greco-Bactrian king engaged in a civil war following the murder of Eucratides. Justin recognized that the wars of Eucratides, be they rebellions after his usurpation of the previous king or the conquests he raged abroad, had sapped the military manpower of the kingdom that was necessary to protect itself. Already under immense pressure, the intrusion of the nomads proved just too much for an unstable system. 
We must also reconsider the notion that Grecobactria ended with the abandonment of Iconum and the demise of Heliocles I. The arrival of the Saka and the Uechi did not obliterate Greek culture from existence, and there is plenty of evidence to show that it continued to survive in Bactria for many decades following, which we will spend time extensively covering later. Cohabitation between the Greeks, nomads, and local Bactrians must have taken place, and the degree of violence or cooperation between these groups can only be surmised. One cannot help but wonder if the native Bactrians took part in the destruction of the city, given the seemingly deliberate large-scale damage inflicted upon the palace and other important civic buildings, a possible consequence of perceived or real inequality. We know that the nomads occupied Iconum for a time. Several graves found within the city dating to this period share strong similarities to the Kurgan burials of the steppe, and one occupant even displays sign of artificial cranial deformation, a custom practiced by many nomadic tribes, including the famous Huns. Excavations in Sogdiana have complicated the picture further. Unlike Bactria, there does not appear to be a wave of destruction dating to this period. If anything, there seems to be an increased presence of Greek occupation during the mid-2nd century. Following the reconquest of Sogdiana by Eucratides, it is suggested that many Greeks fled north from Bactria to the Sogdian settlements after the nomads invaded. More famous were the Indo-Greek kingdoms of Pakistan and northwest India, which survived until the beginning of the 1st century AD, and is a topic we will approach in a few episodes. While the silence of Bactria is felt all too powerfully in the works of Greco-Roman authors, we can rely on another voice to fill in the picture. Shortly after the fall of the last Greek king of Afghanistan, the Han Chinese would reach the lands of Dasha and Dayuan, a transformative event that would affect the history of Bactria and the rest of Eurasia for centuries to come. <laughs> <laughs>